On September 11th, 2001, Jay Jonas was the captain of Ladder 6 for the fire department of New York City. He was eating Wheaties in the firehouse that morning when overheard, overhead he heard a loud roar followed quickly by an extreme crash. The watchman of the firehouse said that uh, a, a plane had hit the north tower of the World Trade Center. And so Ladder 6 self-dispatched and made their way from Chinatown, where they were stationed, all the way to the World Trade Center. When they arrived, the incident command directed them to go up into the north tower to rescue and evacuate anybody that they could. And so Jay Jonas and his crew made their way up the stairwell, made it all the way to the 27th floor, when all of a sudden the North Tower began to shake violently and they actually fell to the ground. It was in that moment that the South Tower collapsed. Jay Jonas knew that if the tower that hit was hit second had already collapsed, then the one he was in was probably most likely to do the same. And so he ordered an evacuation of his men and they began descending from the 27th floor. And they made it down to about the 20th floor where they met Josephine Harris. She was working on somewhere above the 70th floor and she had worked herself down all those stairways. But at the 20th floor, she had fallen and she just quit. She said, I can't go any further. And they found her in tears. And she said, just leave me alone and, and keep going. But Jay Jonas wasn't going to do that, nor was his crew. And so they found a chair, and they put Josephine in the chair, and they began to carry her from the 20th floor all the way down, hopefully to make an evacuation. Many times they had to stop to the side and let other people who were evacuating the building go ahead of them because they were taking so long. And they made it all the way to the fourth floor, and that's when the North Tower began to shake violently, and Jay knew, Jonas knew what was happening. One by one by one by one, the 106 floors above him came crashing down. Debris was everywhere, and then it stopped. What he experienced was what they call a pancake space happens typically when a, a large high-rise will collapse like that. There's a, a moment, a miraculous moment, where all the debris stops, and that's where Jay Jonas and his crew and Josephine Harris found themselves. He said it felt like dead silence. And they stood there for, they didn't know for how long, but they started looking. Was there a way for them to escape because they were trapped in the stairwell of stairwell B, the North Tower, and based on it being so dark and not wanting to use their light to maybe conserve energy for, for what knew how much long they would be there, uh, they just sat there in silence. He checked and made sure all of his men were safe. And then he made a mayday call. Mayday, mayday. This is six truck. We're in the North Tower. We're in the staircase B. And the response on the radio was, we're not even sure where the North Tower is right now. He thought it probably was the end of his life. And so they sat there for hours. And then at a moment that only God could cause, the, the dust seemed to settle and light from the outside started to penetrate the staircase that had been pitch dark. And they saw a spot where they might be able to navigate through the rubbish, uh, wreckage. And they did. They actually found an escape out. And all of Six Truck and Josephine Harris escaped that day. Not a life was lost up in, within their group. What's now known as Miracle of Stairway B is uh, just a, a moment where God's presence showed up in a very dark, very destructive time, right? And uh, Ladder Truck 6 and Josephine stayed in contact for, for the next 10 years until her death, where all of Six Trucks served as the pallbearers for Josephine to lay her in her final rest. 
I think if you ask Captain Jonas and anybody that was part of Six Truck that day, like ask them about that moment, I think what they would say is we were just doing our job. We were just doing what we were trained for. It's what we do. And as we celebrate 20 years later, the heroism of people like that, and also just remember the lives that were lost at the World Trade Center in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, and actually in that field in Pennsylvania. I hope we will never forget the, the impact and the lives lost and also their heroism, all those mixed together. Hope we'll be inspired by their story. And I also hope that we'll be just compelled to follow their example, to live our lives bravely and courageously as well as to its fullest potential. Today, we want to continue to trace the work of the Holy Spirit as recorded through the book of Acts, where we see the Holy Spirit empowering people just like you and me, normal, everyday people, to live and love like Jesus and to carry out his mission in the world. Today, we're going to look at a man, his name is Stephen, who was described as being full of the Holy Spirit. And I hope what you see in his life is that he served humbly that he, he spoke boldly and also that he took a stand courageously. We're going to be looking at his life story that's recorded in Acts 6 and 7. And so I'd encourage you to grab a copy of the Bible, whether it's on a device or if you want to use the, the copy that's in the seat back in front of you or your own personal copy of Scripture, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. We're going to work through together chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7. The first thing I want us to look at is that Stephen was empowered to serve. As we noticed last week, the church was rapidly growing since its birth, recorded in Acts 2. And simultaneously, some discontentedness had entered the church over needs that were being unmet. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 6. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The issue causing conflict was concerning who was being better cared for, the Greek-speaking widows or the Hebrew-speaking widows. And these two groups had lots of differences, and it was more pronounced than just their language. They both had different cultures and customs and experiences. The Greek-speaking widows most likely lived outside of the city of Jerusalem, while the Hebrew-speaking widows lived within the protection of the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. There had been a long-standing tension between these two groups of people, and the tensions flared when people from both groups uh, began to follow Jesus. I want you to know that God has always been concerned about those who cannot care for themselves, and widows fit into that category. The Old Testament law required in Exodus 22, God says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Wow, that's a pretty strong language, right? The half-brother of Jesus says in James 1.27 in the New Testament, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is, to, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In Judaism, there were actually two forms of benevolence, caring for those in need. The first is this. Every Friday, relief officers would collect money in a box and then distribute enough money to those in need according to uh, enough to pay for 14 meals for the next uh, two weeks, right? The second form was this. 
Relief officers would collect food to distribute to those who were in temporary situations or who were not residents of the community. Well, what was the solution that the early church brought about? Well, look at verses two through four. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The solution involved the 12 apostles determining that the church had outgrown their ability to do it all. That must have been a humbling as well as necessary revelation. So they called a meeting. I mean, that's what every good church leader does when there's a problem that needs a solution, you call a meeting, right? And their first order of business was to determine the priorities of the church, which is much easier said than done. The early church was facing a struggle between the need to teach and preach to those who were converting to Christianity, as well as to meet the needs of those in need. Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia, says that's a tension that needs to be managed. Both teaching God's word and caring for the needs of others are essential to be a complete reflection of the heart of God and to fulfill the mission of the church. Here at Crossroads, we have set aside funds every year in our annual budget, what we refer to as the Agape Fund. And the Agape Fund are funds that are dedicated to caring for the needs of people within our congregation. If someone in our congregation doesn't have money for food, the Agape Fund can provide that. If somebody is short on their rent or need their electricity bill paid before it gets turned off, those are the type of things that the Agape Fund does. And if you're a member at Crossroads and you're ever in need in one of those type of situations, simply to begin the process, you can call the church office, 812-858-8668, and we're here to help you. It's what family does. But also, you might be sitting there today and wonder, well, how are those needs processes? Well, our heart is much more to help people with a hand up instead of just a hand out. And so right now, even our Agape Fund team is being enhanced by adding to that group of people, people who are like lawyers, who are physicians, or people who are teachers, people who are good with their own finances, to walk through those difficult situations with people and, in, and equip them. That's something you might be interested in being part of. And so I would encourage you to reach out to John Heflick, who's our new local outreach lead. He would be, love to get you engaged in how our church is caring for each other so that there are no needs among us. Now, if we as a congregation just spent all of our time preaching and teaching the Bible and never met the needs of those in need, we would not fulfill what God has designed for his church to be. And if we as a, Christ, a church were, were to spend all of our time meeting the needs of others and allocate no time and resources to the teaching of God's word, we also wouldn't be all that God has designed his church to be. You can't separate one from the other. So the apostles proposed the plan. Let's empower servants to handle both. I think you cannot accurately translate these passages to say this. The, elder, the apostles were not saying, we'll handle the big job, like preaching and teaching, and then you guys handle all the piddly stuff. That is not what the apostles were doing. They wanted to make sure that both were going to happen. I think of greater significance than the role each played is the quality of persons chosen to be part of the work. Look how it describes them in verses five and six of Acts six. 
Does this proposal please the whole group? I think that's another miracle that happens recorded in the book of Acts, that they met and they agreed on something. All of them did. I mean, that's miraculous, but I digress. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. There are several important characteristics of these people that I want to focus on. The first is this. They were all Greek. They have Hellenistic names that are really hard to pronounce if you don't practice over and over and over. They, they were most likely those who lived outside of Judea. Don't forget that the Hellenistic Jews were the ones who were complaining. And so the apostles appointed Hellenistic um, workers to address the need because I think they could relate. They understood the situation. All these men were also well-respected, it says. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 provide characteristics and qualifications for those who lead in the church. And one of those characteristics is that they, are, they live lives above reproach. What does that mean? Well, it means they're well-respected and they have integrity. And that was the description of these seven men who were set apart. Remember the movie, Remember the Titans? They had that phrase that says, speed of the leader is speed of the team. I think that's the principle you see being played out here. A more significant characteristic of these seven men was that they were full of the Spirit. That description describes a lifestyle where the Holy Spirit's presence is obvious to every person around these men. They were embodying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They were also exercising the gifts that the Spirit gave them. Finally, it says they were full of wisdom. They were able to make decisions. They were able to problem solve. And I love this picture of the apostles laying their hands on these men, these newly selected servants, and, and praying over them. Laying on the hands is, is something that's very pre prevalent through, all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, the priest would lay his hands on the animal to transfer the sin to the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, hands were placed on people to commission them or set them apart for, for the work of the Lord. In the New Testament, we see people having their hands laid on them to bring healing or to bring blessing, to be given gifts of the Holy Spirit, and also for the same, commissioning for the work of the Lord. While some see an official office being set apart here, the office of deacon, I get a grander sense that these people were, were being affirmed to commission for serving, not for a title. A problem was identified. The apostles created a plan. They explained it to the church. They solicited feedback and input. They oversaw the selection of leaders, and then they empowered these leaders to do the work. That's a picture of effective ministry. Truth is, we never hear much about five of the seven that are appointed that day. The only two we hear about is Philip, who will be recorded in Acts 8, and Stephen, who we're looking at today. There was more to be done than the apostles could do themselves. And there's more to do here at Crossroads than the elders or the staff can do. Ephesians 2 is very clear that all of us were created for good works. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that, that the work to be done is to be done in a teamwork where every person who has a gift is using it to build others up. I love what Paul says in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. This is Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, listen to what he says. God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, 
but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions of power are in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it, and everyone benefits. My friends, I want you to know that God is still looking for men and women to help his church be all he designed it to be. And some of you are just waiting for someone to ask. Well, here's the news to you. God already has. He has gifted you and equipped you to be part of what he is doing in the world around us. The Holy Spirit, the same one that was at work in those seven men, is at work in each of us. Those of us who have claimed Jesus as Savior and Lord. The offer has been extended. Your name has been called. You've been selected. The job is there for the taking. You have been chosen by God. We continue to clarify that living and loving like Jesus involves being sent. A couple of weeks ago, as we were continuing to unpack the roadmap, it's a resource we've created to help give all of us action steps and resources we can take to live and love like Jesus. And in being sent, it's about identifying the gifts that God has given us, as well as the opportunities where those gifts can be used. And there are plenty of opportunities around Crossroads for you to use your giftedness and connect them to what God is doing. In fact, part of the roadmap is encouraging you to be part of what we call the Serve Tour, which happens next Sunday, the 19th, at 10.15 a.m. It happens in the Welcome Center. It's a 30 to 40 minute experience where you can go on tour of what God is doing here at Crossroads and more importantly, find your place to contribute to what God is up to, using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to move his kingdom forward. Many of you have felt that nudge and yet you still sit there on the bench. Some of you have run like Jonah. You've gone the opposite way. You don't want anything to do with it. Most of us miss out on the fulfillment and the meaning we can find in being who we were created to be, doing what God created us to do, being part of what he's doing in the world around us. Like Stephen, we have all been chosen by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve. Let me share with you an immediate need. Just a few months ago, we hired a new kids director, Alexa Rollman. And one of the harsh realities that she's walked into in the past 60 days is the fact that we need about 80 volunteers, eight zero, to make Sunday morning kids ministry happen. And right now she has a whopping 25 volunteers that are involved in kids ministry. Now I wanna assure you if you dropped your little precious off this morning that he or she is safe, safety is really important to us. But more important to us is that your child, all of us would learn how to live in love like Jesus. And that's not possible in our kids' ministry without someone like you who does love Jesus and is trying to live like him to invest in them and show them the way. So my ask is this. Many of you are gifted. Many of you are called. Many of you have a passion for kids. And even if you're just willing to help, I'd encourage you to reach out to Alexa this morning. You can go to cccgo.com forward slash kids, find more information, but don't just read about it. Do something about it. I'd love to see that need met. Stephen was empowered to serve, but he was also empowered to speak. Continue reading with me now in verse eight. Oh, I forgot something. That's just too good to miss. What happens when we serve is indicated in verse seven. Check this out. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's what can happen 
when you and I are serving. Empowered to speak, verse eight, let's keep reading. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. I love that description of Stephen, that he was full of God's grace and power. Not only was Stephen someone who was available and dependable, but he was wise. He was full of faith. And God's power was at work in him as well as through him. He was able to do miraculous signs through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's significant because up to this point, it had only been reserved for the 12 apostles. He was going to need this power because it was about to get crazy for him. Let's keep reading now in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard this Stephen speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teacher of the law. They seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. We even heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen was not only just making sure that the needs of the widows were being met, he began preaching and teaching and was a powerful communicator of truth. And that didn't make the Jewish leaders very happy. They began to challenge him. I love that description is that they could not stand up against his teaching because of the wisdom given him by the Holy Spirit. So they persuaded false accusers to accuse him of some very similar things that Jesus was Accusations were made toward Jesus of things like disrespecting the temple or being blasphemous, changing the the customs and laws, abolishing the customs of Moses. The Holy Spirit empowered Stephen to speak confidently and boldly, even in the face of accusation. And in verse 15, it says that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what that face looks like, but I think it might be similar to what Moses' face looked like when he was on the mountain with God. It might resemble what Jesus looked like when he was on the the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and it says he was transfigured. One commentator says, I know what it looks like. It looks like someone who's been in the presence of God. Well, Stephen also stands in the presence of Caiaphas in this moment, who was the priest at Jesus' trial and who had handed him over to be crucified. Caiaphas was also the guy who accused Peter and John of doing something wrong when they healed a lame man. And he also told them that they could not teach about Jesus anymore. Well, Jesus had prepared his followers for moments like this. In Matthew 10, he says these words to his followers. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. I pray that for my three kids every day. God, help them to be wise as serpents innocent as doves. Jesus goes on, he says, be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Acts 7 records what Stephen said that day to the high priest 
and the council. And many have described Stephen's discourse in this moment as one of the most direct, unpolitical, and beautifully logical, historical, and theological discourses in the entire Bible. You should read it on your own time. Stephen's sermon that day is a great account of history that begins with Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. It was a bold declaration of truth, and it was also a strong warning to all those listening. He clearly addressed the false accusations that were made against him, but he also challenged their thinking by proclaiming that God had not broken his promises, that he was not constrained or limited to a structure or place to be worshiped, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that all those listening were guilty of his blood. That was a pretty strong message. And Stephen knew full well how they might respond because he had just recounted how they had treated the other messengers that God had sent to them. Yet he responded by having unshakable faith and a resolve to speak the truth. Like Stephen, you and I are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak boldly. I've met many of people who just seem to not have much to say, and I've met a lot of other people who never know when to shut up, right? And so God has given each of us the message of truth to share. And it's time we start speaking up. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give a reason for the hope that you have. You and I have the responsibility to speak the message of truth to the world around us. And that opportunity can occur in some really uncomfortable or unpredictable places. It might come in the face of false accusation, and scrutiny like it did for Stephen. It might come when you dial the wrong number. It could be that you meant to meet a friend at one place and you showed up at another. It could happen when you reconnect with some friends you knew on the surface when you go to your high school class reunion. It could happen around the casket of a loved one. It could happen when the name of God is taken out of schools and government buildings and the pledge. Regardless, we still have the responsibility to speak the truth. Many of the atrocities in our world's history have taken place because God's people have been afraid to speak up and have remained silent. Slavery. Slavery could have been abolished quickly as it began if God's people would have spoken out. Hitler's annihilation of the Jews. Many of God's people in that moment remained silent and literally millions of people were exterminated as a result. The value of human life being from conception has not been broadly affirmed or supported in our culture today, yet it still is a reflection of God's heart for life. And God's design for marriage as being between a man and a woman who've committed together for all of their life has not been shared or even supported as something good. In fact, our culture has said everything but that is legal, celebrated, and normal. And yet all of us just kind of act like nothing is happening. And finally, sex trafficking. Literally hundreds of thousands of people are violated and abused while we just sit quietly. Even more horrific than anything I just mentioned is the reality that you and I both know people who, if they died today, would not go to heaven because they have never said yes to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And yet we're too worried about their opinion of us than we are their salvation. My friends, it's time for us to speak out. It's time for us to speak up. It's time for us to share the truth in love. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament received a very strong warning from God. Look at what he says. 
Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, the wicked person will die for their sin, and I'll hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. God's truth is still true today. And the message is still in need of sharing to the world that's begging for something to believe in. Regardless if it's politically correct, whether it's comfortable for us or not, regardless of the consequences, because eternity hangs in the balance. The Holy Spirit empowered Stephen to serve, to speak boldly, and also to stand courageously. Flip over to the end of chapter 7, and let's hear how the moment ends. In verse 54, Luke records this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's message was not well received that day, to say the least. Those who heard them shook their fists at him and even gnashed their teeth. I don't know what gnash their teeth means exactly, but my son Cade, he grinds his teeth quite often, and it's an unnerving sound made throughout the entire house. It kind of, just kind of, right? But that noise did not phase Stephen that day. He kept his focus on the only one whose opinion really mattered, his audience of one. God. And what he saw was a very unique sighting, unique in all of Scripture. In fact, most times Jesus is depicted as seated at the right hand of God, a place of authority. But what Stephen saw that day was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why was he standing? Well, several commentators have an opinion. Some think that he was standing to represent his position of authority, and that could be true. Maybe he was standing to welcome home the first martyr of Christendom. Maybe he was standing in approval of Stephen's testimony and faithfulness. One commentator said he was standing to show that I'm in control, I'm not aloof, and I'm taking names of the people who've just persecuted one of my faithful witnesses. You know what I think? I think Jesus is standing because Stephen stood. I think he's saying, way to go. I think he's giving Stephen a standing ovation. He's saying, that's what it looks like when a person lives and loves and even is willing to die because I'm their Savior and Lord. Jesus said later in Matthew 10 these words, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Stephen ended up losing his life for his faith in that moment. 
He was stoned to death by the religious leaders, members of the Sanhedrin. In the ancient world, when a person was stoned, that person, the victim was taken outside of the city. They were thrown off a cliff, hoping that that would kill them. And if it didn't, then they were shoved a large stone on top of them, hoping that that would seal their fate. And if that didn't, then they pelted the victim with other stones until the person died. It was much more of a mob scene than some organized procedure. The stoning of Stephen that day, those doing it took off their coats and, and they, they, they wanted to participate freely in the activity, but I also think they didn't want his innocent blood on their clothing. And Luke records that they laid their garments at the feet of a guy named Saul, who seemed to be approving of the situation. Some think that he was even maybe directly given instruction for Stephen to be stoned because Saul would have made up part of that synagogue where Stephen's accusers were from. I see irony here. Stephen's name means crown or wreath, a laurel of a champion athlete. And the irony is this, as Stephen's prosecutors or persecutors were laying their robes at the feet of somebody who they were hoping to get approval, Stephen was laying his crown at the feet of Jesus, who's the only one whose approval really matters. And did you notice what Stephen did as they were throwing stones at him? He prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You could say that Stephen did live, he did love, and he did die, just like Jesus. And the only negative I really see about Stephen's life is that it was over way too soon. He appears quickly as one who was chosen to serve, and he leaves as a bulwark of faith in the face of death. His life, his life counted for something, and so can yours. Jesus' offer to follow him it's not filled with a bunch of hidden fine print. I want you to know, friends, that the time is coming, in fact, in closer than it ever has been. When those of us who call Jesus Savior and Lord are going to be required to take a stand, regardless of what country we live in, and make a choice to remain faithful, even if it costs us our life. Pastor and author Ray Comfort has written a book that's titled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for My Life. Check out the picture he chose for the front cover. It's actually the picture of Stephen being stoned because he wants to debunk the, debunk the myth that all of us have bought into that, that God's greatest desire is us to show up together for an hour on Sunday and think that we have a great life that shouldn't be touched by anything else. I think Stephen is a real life example of what it looks like to step up to serve, to speak up and share the truth and to stand courageously for Jesus regardless if it cost him his life. Remember, Stephen's story is not a Disney film. It's not a, a fiction novel. It's not a fairy tale. Many of us in this room celebrate the religious freedom that we have in this country. And we think that that's just the way God wants it to be because we're Americans. Well, I hate to pull up our, our little spiritual bubble, but I need to, to let you know and challenge this perspective that maybe that isn't. God's greatest plan. Maybe God has placed us here to be a light. And maybe that light will shine brightest when the darkest is around us. You know, one of the harsh realities of September 11, 2001, is that it rocked our world because that was the first time that foreign people had attacked us within our borders. And it rattled us. Maybe we aren't as safe as we all thought, right? I think COVID's had the exact same impact. They're like, 
that doesn't happen in our country. We're, we're, that's supposed to happen somewhere else. And we, we've kind of pictured ourselves in this safe little bubble and thought it was because our country was founded on godly roots. I want you to know, friends, that our citizenship is in this country, but it's even higher in the kingdom of God. Francis Chan has something to say about all this. Listen to what he writes. He says, all my life I've heard people say, the reason we're not getting persecuted is because we live in America. He says, I don't believe that. If you're, going to be, if you're not being persecuted, Chan said, it's because you're purposely avoiding persecution. If Jesus lived in America, he would be persecuted. You know why? Because he didn't know to keep his mouth shut. And he spoke up. Peter was the same way. Paul could have lived a lot longer if he wouldn't have put himself in such dangerous places. We don't get persecuted here in America, Chan says, because we are good at dodging persecution. However, suffering is in every part of the Bible. Chan says, there's many things I don't like that are in the Bible. I like comfort. I like playing. I like being admired. But part of denying yourself and taking up your cross is part of the hard stuff. The message of Christianity is that you will suffer for Jesus and that he is worth it. Francis Chan is not just talking and writing about this stuff. He's actually living it. In 2010, he resigned as the pastor of a large megachurch in California. He moved his family to China, where he began to interview and get to know people who were facing persecution, not just in China, but in all Asia, in India. He wanted to learn from them because he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he'd become too weak, too safe, too free of taking risks that would help the kingdom of God move forward and people to come to know Jesus. And so, since then, Chan and his wife and four kids have continued traveling all around the world to learn how to remain strong in the face of persecution. I think he would quickly say that wearing a mask is, is probably not persecution. Facing COVID is probably not persecution. It's when you're facing situations like Stephen, your life or death hangs in the balance, and yet you remain and choose to be faithful. Since then, he's started a network of house churches in Northern California. He's returned to Hong Kong, where he started a ministry there among the area's poorest people, people who are facing death every day, physically and for their faith. He's teaching and serving and helping all of us be equipped to live lives the same way. The book of Acts is filled with real life stories of men and women who are doing just what they are supposed to do because they've claimed Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're living and loving like Jesus, and they're fulfilling his mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, in this room, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you have the same Holy Spirit, and you have the same mission. You are empowered to serve. It's time to step off the bench and into the game. It's time to be part of what God is doing in the world around us. He doesn't need you. He wants you. That's why he created you. That's why he saved you. And that's why he's placed his spirit in you. Because you're part of what he's doing in the world around us. You're also empowered to speak. It's time for us to quit being quiet. Every one of us know there is truth in a situation that God has placed us in, and that truth is for us to stand and share. All of us know someone who needs the truth of Jesus. Eternity hangs in the balance, so quit being silent. And you and I are both empowered to stand. I cannot predict what it might cost you to follow Jesus, 
Just be prepared that it might cost you everything. And never forget that Jesus is worth it. Would you pray with me? God, when I read about Stephen in the Bible, I, I just kind of feel like it's, it's something that's supernatural. And I think that's the point. Stephen's just an ordinary man like me. He's a simple person like all of us. And yet, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, he was a man that was full of God's grace, full of wisdom, full of power, a heart to serve, a courageousness to stand, a bold proclaimer of truth, God. God, that's not just something you want for Stephen. It's something that you want for all of us. God, it's something that we all are capable of, not within ourselves, but because of the Spirit working in us. And so, God, my prayer, you start with me. Would you help me to serve more because of the Holy Spirit inside of me? God, would you help me to speak more? Would you help me to stand more? God, I pray that all of us, infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, would live in love like Jesus. We'd be willing to die like him because he is our only hope. He is the one that we give our allegiance to. God, I know that that has the power to change the world around us. God, I can't think of a better time for that to start than right now. So God, I pray that you would not just help us to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. God, your Holy Spirit would lead us would empower us, would convict us, would challenge us, would change us, all for your glory and praise. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.